Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. I'm Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta. We're really excited to be running these network nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for the third season. This is the second to last one for the season. So just so you guys know, there's only one more after this. Uh, make sure you make it on because it's going to be really good as well. So tonight, we're really excited to have Dr. Chris Nichols joining us as our guest. You might have heard me talk about some of my favorite soil scientists in the past, and Chris is definitely up there on the list. She's one of my favorites for sure. I always walk away from conversations with her energized and excited about things that are happening in the soil and mycorrhizal fungi, for sure. She's the girl to ask about mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, so tonight's a really cool topic as we get to talk about the Living Lab program happening here in Alberta. It's, it's a really unique initiative and I'm excited to hear Chris talk a little bit more about it, but I'm also going to let her explain exactly what that means and what her part in the program is. Until then, Steve, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role in, in running these Wednesday Night Networkings and your thoughts on tonight's topic? Yes, thanks, Amber. Um, yeah, excited about tonight. Um, always great to have Chris uh, come on here. Well, we've had her a couple times now. Uh, she's a, a popular favorite, I know. Tonight, we are getting into the Living Labs discussion, which um, to, to me, the history of the, uh, the, the Living Labs, it's a little bit unclear. I'm, I'm going to learn a little bit here tonight, I'm sure, from, from Chris, too. But we're a part of it. We're, we've got a demo going. Um, we're doing a bale grazing demo. So they came out and took some uh, soil tests uh, last fall. We've done a, a three different fields this, this winter of bale grazing. So we're trying to get that nutrients and water holding capacity built up on some land. And uh, so I'm very excited about looking at the, the results out of that. Um, we also got lucky here. I found some soil test reports from 17 years ago on the field right across from our bale grazing field that we did a demo with the Gateway Research Organization on bale grazing. So we're going to have re results from 17 uh, years ago uh, and what the soil looks like now and what the soil test reports look like now. So I'm excited to see, uh, to get out there this summer and, and uh, dig, in, dig in the dirt a little bit and see what, what's happened there. Uh, a couple of things about the soil test report, I think uh, that I really noticed was a very high acidity, um, like in the 5.5 in the range. So I'm excited to see if we've fixed that over 17 years. So um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's my, my part of this tonight. I'm uh, a participant in the Living Labs, I guess. So I will turn it over to Chris and uh, uh, have at her. Hi, everybody. And, and I apologize. I um, didn't get my name changed to Alpha Food Water Wellness Foundation, but that works because Food Water Wellness Foundation is um, a, one of the lead organizations in um, uh, managing this project. Um, oh, Thank you, Amber. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so Food Water Wellness Foundation is uh, leading this um, with uh, the uh, help of um, Alberta Conservation Association, ACA, and we're working with the um, ARAs, the um, research associations uh, throughout Alberta, and we're also working with a, a number of other partners as well on this project. This is a, a five-year project, and what really excites me about this is that this is 
farmer driven. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the Living Labs project and some of the, the data that we generated from a pilot project that assisted us in getting the funding from the Canadian government, but also um, want to kind of show some things. So we're going to we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, and hopefully jump around a little bit as we're as we're talking to um, with a number of different things. So I'm going to share my screen if possible. You're pretty special, uh, Chris, because she doesn't ever let. I don't let people. Screen. You don't let people share their screens. I yeah, know. So I, that's I'm special. I'm 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 violating all of the rules. Oh, you're breaking already. We have barely got I, started, and you're already we barely got started, and we're breaking all of the rules. But one of the things that I guess I want to kind of share I was and I talked about this and and I'll post some of these pictures on social media and share these with Amber but um, the last few weeks have been really exciting I've been able to go around Alberta and be able to see some of the innovations that that are going on and that's really what the Living Labs project is about is we are going throughout Alberta um, we've got about 120 farms that are participating in the project. And on each farm, we're going to be taking soil samples down to a meter depth. And we're going to be utilizing an innovative tool to be able to identify where we're gonna be taking the soil samples um, called um, feature-spaced soils, feature-spaced sampling. And what it is doing, it's a, a combination of something called Latin hypercubed and it also takes into account what is actually um, happening on the ground so that it utilizes a bunch of geospatial data and information to identify areas on the landscape that are unique and where there's very little data. And then it uses that information to tell us where we should go soil sample. And then we combine the data that we're getting with the soil sampling where we're looking at uh, soil carbon, total organic carbon, total carbon, total nitrogen. Um, we're doing a total nutrient digestion analysis, looking at macro and micronutrients, measuring pH, EC, aggregate stability. So we've got a number of different parameters. We're also gonna be scanning with the, the cores that we're taking with FTIR in order to be able to assess, um, trying to use some new technology to understand what carbon we have in our soil and what that carbon looks like in order for us to understand the functionality of the carbon as well as the ability of that carbon to um, stay in the soil for longer periods of time. And so I just wanted to kind of quickly show some of these pictures um, that I had from um, just the last uh, couple of weeks that I've had around Alberta. And I know that not all of you can see this. I was up in, in Bonneville, Alberta. Um, and this is where we were looking at some different types of winter grazing. And so with winter grazing, this is on uh, some corn stalks that you have there. Um, but we were also talking about winter grazing that you can do with swath grazing, stockpiles, um, and also looking at uh, bale grazing, as Steve mentioned earlier. And so we've got all of these different, I, I, what really excites me about regenerative agriculture are all of these different options and opportunities that we have to be able to really make some different types of innovations that we've got going on. 
And so, you know, we were looking at um, these cows out in the cornfields um, grazing, uh, and we're also talking about making some innovations and changes as to when you're going about calving. So a lot of these producers that are doing this are looking at calving more in April rather than um, calving early. And that is going to allow them to allow the cat, the cows to actually calve out um, in the pasture rather than um, bringing them home. And so that was a big part of what we were talking about. Um, I also was, sorry, I'm gonna step over that. I don't want this to run. Um, we were in a greenhouse. I want to turn my volume off, okay. So we were actually in a greenhouse um, near uh, Coaldale as well. And this is Andrew Mann's greenhouse. And he was talking to us about um, some different things. So, so here he was showing us what was happening with, with honeybees um, or with bumblebees. And you can tell by looking at the flowers as to if the bumblebees have already been there and um, pollinated. So uh, it provides a lot of these different opportunities and options to look at regenerative agricultural principles, utilizing um, various types of insects to help to manage uh, various types of uh, predatory insects. Um, we're utilizing some compost. So this is making uh, some compost, uh, doing some vermicomposting. Um, and then we've got some chickens outside in a high tunnel type of operation that they were overwintering in the high tunnel. So there's a lot of these innovations that are going on, and I'm going to stop sharing now. Um, but there's a lot of these innovations that are going on throughout the province of Alberta that producers are putting into place. And that's really what the Living Labs is about. Um, this is uh, the Regenerative Alberta Living Labs. So we're focused on regenerative agriculture, but we're not looking at specific uh, BMPs, um, but we're looking at the various types of innovations and BMPs that different producers have put into place and then going out and sampling and collecting the uh, soil cores and collecting the soil data information. And then we're utilizing that. And sorry, I said I wasn't going to share anymore, but we're utilizing that to, I want to do one more thing. And I know that Amber disabled me and now, <laughs> and now I want to ask her again to give me permission. Um, but we're utilizing that to do some really innovative things to be able to take a look at um, creating these large scale maps to be taking a look at uh, carbon and nitrogen that is in the soil. And we've got this for the entire agricultural zone of Alberta, where we can create what would be looking like heat maps in order to be able to assess how much carbon um, you have in the soil. We can look at how much nitrogen um, we can look at a number of different characteristics. We can look at pH, we can look at clay content, all of these different characteristics that you can have where we're taking the information from the soil samples and utilizing that with uh, computer technology and machine learning in order to be able to create these large landscape level maps. So what we've got here are maps that are essentially showing the um, agricultural zone of Alberta, which is about uh, 50 million 
acres um, of land that we're able to map with this. So there's a lot of things that I think that are happening within the living labs where we can show these innovations that I talked about and discuss other innovations, but at the same time, then take that data and be able to look at this on a very large landscape level. So that's really what I wanted to, to kind of talk about. And maybe we can do some discussion in Q&A, Steve, to, to maybe get some better ideas on, on what the living labs look like. Could we, for one, everyone listening to the podcast, we will be posting those maps and making those pictures available to you. I will put it in the show notes where possible. Um, and then outside of the podcast, Chris, would you mind just doing a little bit of an introduction for those of the listeners and people here that don't know you? Oh, yes. Sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, I am uh, Chris Nichols. I am a soil microbiologist and the lead scientist with Food Water Wellness Foundation that, as I said, was leading this laboratory. Um, I am originally from the United States. My dad farms in southwestern Minnesota, and I've worked with the USDA Agriculture Research Service in North Dakota, where I met Jean Govan who we were discussing, I was discussing with earlier on the call um, and was there in North Dakota for about 11 years and was really, got really excited about being able to work with farmers and ranchers like Gene doing a lot of these really great innovations and putting these new uh, tools into place. And then I worked at the Rodell Institute in Pennsylvania for a few years and most recently, before moving up to Canada, I was in Arizona working on some desert agriculture. And I think what, what excites me is the thing that really unifies things is our really great need to be able to regenerate soil. I think our limiting, um, our limit to production across all of these different landscapes from Canada, across the US. I've done some work in Australia and um, over in Europe and um, was able to present down in South Africa in the past. And as I look at all of these different soils and all of these different landscapes, we're all united by the fact that our greatest limitation is carbon and carbon in the form of soil that we're regenerating. So soil is carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen bound to sand, silt, and clay. And if we can get more carbon into the system and regenerate the soil, that's going to be able to resolve a lot of our issues. Awesome. Chris, Thanks, Chris. I was, I was just going to try and simplify this a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. The way I see, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I say this wrong, but uh, the way I see these living labs, uh, we've got a research community that is some kind, sometimes disconnected from the farmer. Mm -hmm. And and we've got these uh, innovators and early adopters who are trying new things, doing regenerative agriculture, you know, doing all these, you know, sometimes we're called the, the crackpot crazies. Uh, but what this living labs to me, I see is the researchers coming out onto the farm where the innovators and early adopters are doing these experiments. And we're getting some legitimate hopefully science behind some of these new practices that are kind of cutting edge, you know, on, on the, uh, uh, where most people don't, don't, uh, accept them yet. Uh, but we're trying to catch everybody up and get everybody on the same page. Am I, am I correct on saying that? Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing I would like to add to that is oftentimes we, as researchers, we like very well controlled experiments and things to be very well defined. And so we will, 
you know, want to do some on-farm research with producers, but we will tell them what it is that we want to study and what innovations we want them to put on. And, and as you said, you know, it's put researchers uh, very much behind in understanding some of these innovations that these early adopters have done. And so now we're, we're trying to, to gain uh, knowledge and um, data to be able to really show what's happening with some of these different types of innovations and not just looking at one or two innovations. We're across the spectrum, whatever innovation you want to put into place. And that was, you know, we're talking about swath grazing, we're talking about bale grazing, we're talking about um, chickens, we're talking about cattle, we're talking about sheep, we're talking about organic uh, produce production, um, grain production, canola, all of these different types of things can all be a part of, of what it is that you're doing. No-till, reduced tillage, everything that it is that you can, whatever it is that you can think of. And, and you know, we were even just recently talking about um, pigs creating compost. And uh, I know there's some people throughout our voter that are discussing, you know, pigs making compost. And so uh, that's another thing that I think some of our innovators are gonna be looking at and we're gonna try and do some testing with that. Yeah, I think that's gonna be very valuable to have that connection to though, like the researchers to the, the producers. Uh, that that's something that, you know, maybe has been lacking over the years. And now I, I think this is exciting because that's going to kind of bridge that gap a little bit. Yeah, I think that that is is something that is is really important to what it is that we're doing. And um, as, as you said, you know, researchers need to have that gap um, bridged and and different ways that we can do that. And so it also, I think, is really important as we're communicating these things, um, you know, through this podcast and uh, other forms of social media and other things that we're doing. Um, again, you know, so far this, this spring, I've been up in uh, Manning and over in Rycroft and um, Bonneville and Tabor and Coldale and all of these places, uh, uh, Edmonton and a number of places um, just in the last uh, about five weeks. So um, really being able to find new ways to communicate with producers and get that information and share that with researchers as well as, as with other producers. So Chris, are you going to be in uh, Westlock on Friday? Unfortunately, I am not going to be in Westlock on Friday, but I know that there's, there's, yes, I know um, that uh, there's some really cool things going on in Westlock and, and Shorty's going to present in Westlock and oh. um, yeah. This oh, is no, a that's not the one. This, this is a different one. Okay. So we do for anybody here, cause I'm going to do a shout out now saying right. so Steve basically called it out anyway, for anybody that's going to be in the area, we are having a bale grazing demo followed by barbecue and beers. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be a good event on Friday. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm, I'm very confused and I still am learning my Alberta geography. So yeah. Green I don't think I was too far off, but yeah. I don't know if we can find green beer. We'll, we'll see. I will try beer. for you. I will attempt it. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, Scott. For all of us Irish, you need, you need green beer. You need to have green beer. Go. I'll just bring yeah. some food dye. Because that's really good for you is the food dye. Oh, yes. 
Okay, so we're going to move away from the beer talk and we're going to go to Scott. Scott, do you want to, to yeah. unmute your mic? So, yeah, I'm Scott Gillespie. I'm down in Tabor and I do um, regenerative agrology consulting with farmers in my area and, and around. So I am really interested in seeing what comes out of these labs and I'm hoping to be involved in them in some way. But um, so my question is about the economics and I know it can't be easily done on every project but just um is there going to be kind of like a like an economic analysis done on it because um for example like I find so like with the the bale grazing I think um it makes a lot of sense but then you know you know by the time you bring it in how much it costs and everything like what do you what do you what do you get out of it and then um there was a, I, I just saw the pasture pig stuff too. Like um, that's a really good story. Those type of things show up a lot in the mainstream media, but it's something that only really works if you've got a um, a direct marketing or it's like, it's not a, um, there's a lot of practices that are really good for the soil, but they're not necessarily scalable. So I'm just kind of curious on the economics of, of making these kind of things work when you don't have a, a direct market or a special market. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I think that that's a, a really good question. Um, within the living labs, uh, we are working with uh, Emma Stevenson, uh, Emma Stevens, sorry, uh, with AAFC, um, mm. who's going to be doing some economic analysis. And then we are also uh, with uh, the Regenerative Alberta Living Lab. Um, we are uh, working with uh, an individual named Olivier, and now I can't remember Olivier's last name, but, uh, and I apologize, I'll get that information out there, but um, we are taking that evaluation. So we're looking at socioeconomic data um, and uh, we're also developing uh, a couple of different types of apps that I think will help us to understand a lot more about the economics. So we're developing a, a grazing app and a plant ID app, but that will help us to, again, get some better understanding as we're looking at the, within the grazing app to understand some of the economics that are involved with some of these different grazing practices. Um, there are some grazing apps that are out there, but oftentimes they they kind of seem to, to fail us, especially up here in Alberta when they don't really account well for what different types of winter grazing options that you have. Um, but I also agree with you too, you know, when talking, excuse me, when talking about um, the pigs making compost and, you know, one of the things that makes that work economically is that uh, there's a very high demand for the hog meat um, by, chefs in Germany. And so where they're doing this a lot in Germany, it's they've sort of created a market and, and a market demand that exists there. Um, and so I think, you know, it does provide us with some different options and opportunities to look at some different ways of managing economics. But I also agree with you that we really need to be doing this at scale. And that is one of the big reasons why the Canadian government did invest in this type of a project was that they were realizing that with a lot of the research that is typically done, you may get a few people to do a little bit of the things that are being studied, some of the, the different practices going to no-till or going to using cover crops or, or this and that. 
but it doesn't really get adopted at the scale and the level that needs to happen. And a lot of that is because that economic piece is missing. And so, you know, that's something that we're we're really working through um, and taking a look at as part of this project. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's good because uh, that that's good. Yeah, because I agree. I hadn't thought of that too. But that's another way of looking at it is the scale. Is that yeah, you could have a really great practice, but if only one percent of farms can do it, it it's still a good practice. But you've got to have stuff that can go out to a large large scale. So, yeah. Well, and to be honest with you, Scott, that is one of the reasons why. I left working for USDA when I was working for USDA. I had been with USDA in North Dakota for 11 years, and um, I had been with USDA for about three years in Maryland prior to that. And I was getting frustrated because it's USDA's, uh, the US Department of Agriculture, and that's supposed to be sort of the people's department. Um, it was created by Abraham Lincoln and supposed to, you know, be one of the departments that really represents the people and works with the people and works with farmers and, and ranchers. And I felt like we weren't really going anywhere and we weren't really taking some of the innovations. And although I got to work with people like Gene Govan and yeah, those types of things, you know, the, the USDA research labs that were in North Dakota, uh, there were three of them in North Dakota and none of them really seemed to take on enough of, of these innovations that are happening. So I, I got frustrated because it just wasn't happening at the scale that I wanted to see it happening. And um, again, I worked uh, at the Rodel Institute with some uh, organic growers and it was the same level of frustration where I felt like we were, we were uh, sometimes talking to preaching to the choir a little bit. And, you know, it's great to see these innovations and it's great to see all of the things that can happen, but until we can get this at scale, it really is going to be a thing that's going to limit us in where we can go in the future. Mm -hmm. So you always uh, tweak my interest with economics, Scott. This bale grazing demo that we're doing, uh, of course, we're going to, uh, you know, run the numbers on it. We'll keep track of the the grazing days and, and dollars per acre we're making off of it. But with this little find of these uh, this soil test from 17 years ago. If I can go find all my old paper grazing charts, I could go back because the original bale grazing study had a uh, bale grazing field and a control right next to it. So if I went back through all my grazing charts and pulled out the, the animal days per acre off of each field for the last 17 years, I could come up with a, a dollar value, not only in you know the savings that we did from the the labor and equipment savings when we did it, but also a dollar value after 17 years of how much improvement we've had over those 17 years. Now, looking at the, those fields now, I mean, we just had a couple of years of drought, but uh, there was a control and a bale grazing field. The first year, the bale grazing field was phenomenal, right? The grass was uh, like three feet, three feet tall, four feet tall and thick. And the other one was pretty spindly. It took about 10 years for those two fields to equalize right so the the bale grazing one actually dropped in production like the first year it was phenomenal the first couple of years then it dropped slowly um probably by about year 10 the control because of our grazing management was getting better because we'd just taken that over right we were just getting going on it so at about 10 years they were even and not as good as the first year of the bale grazing but even and now you go out there they look about the same they're still good paddocks but they're not not like they were on year one, two, and three, right? Um, so 
you know, how long does it take to improve a piece of land through just grazing uh, versus we can cheat and, and throw bale grazing at it and kick, kickstart it right away. Um, so yeah, I, depending how much energy and time and uh, information I can dig up, I could do all sorts of stuff with this. I'm uh, uh, mm -hmm. fairly excited about it actually. Well, and if I can just make a plug too for, for what it is that you're looking, you know, in trying to get economic data and economic information for those of you who are participating with the Living Labs, I know that it's not always a, com a comfortable situation to share your information. Um, and, you know, we, within the Living Labs and the way we're working with it is that that information is, is private information and it's retained that way. But for us to be able to aggregate the data and get good information to talk about these various practices like bale grazing and those types of things. Um, for those of you who are in the, the regenerative uh, Alberta Living Lab, um, you'll probably be hearing from Carrie Sharp and, uh, and or Olivier. Um, and if you will share information with them um, and you know as much information because data in, is, is data out is as good as data in. And so um, really being able to share that information, um, I think is, is really critical for us to be able to get some good economic data. Great, thank you guys. Uh, next up, we have Linda. Are you ready to go there, Linda? Sure. Awesome. Uh, Chris, I, I love the work that you do and I'm kind of I'm kind of sad that well really sad that you're up in Canada instead of down here with us in the states. Um, what you know what we have is Jonathan Lundgren who also I think had um, extreme angst about what you couldn't do as part of a government agency and started the Thousand Farms initiative. And it seems like there might be a lot of overlap. So my first question is, is are you sharing information and how could we as producers be able to um, access that? Another piece that I think is kind of missing in John's um, work goes to what Dan Kittredge is doing, trying to do with the Bionutrient Association, trying to understand how do soil health practices change the human health value of the food that we produce. And it seems like one more piece that would be like so phenomenal to have, you know, what you're doing plus the, the human nutrition piece of it, plus the return on investment of, you know, is it practical for us as producers to be able to do it? It's like, that would be my dream trifecta of information to try to decide what to do. And so I was just, hoping that there's a way that you can share out some of that information with us. Well, and, and certainly, um, you know, all of the information that the data that we're, we're gathering, as I said, we're doing a lot of uh, sharing as part of the program um, via social media and, and other media and uh, research publications, which I know are not always the most valuable, but we're, you know, also uh, we've are working on putting up a, a website and we'll be sharing a lot of information on that website as well. Um, I know Jonathan Lundgren very, very well. Um, my dad's farm is basically, well, was was about 20 miles from working South Dakota and, you know, where, where Jonathan's now at, at Blue Dasher Farms, it's about 45 minutes away. And so I, you know, 
have been home visiting my dad and and brought him up to to Jonathan and um, talking about some of those things and trying to get you know um, part of that. And I just was recently talking with Jonathan um, at the Acres Conference um, that was down in. Uh, uh, Covington, Kentucky, but um, also followed up some other conversations with Jonathan where we were talking about how he's going about collecting data and information and how we're going about doing that for you know his thousand farms initiative and um, hopefully we can we can dovetail as much as possible and and continue to be able to um, synchronize a lot of this information going forward because I agree Linda it's a it's a great way for us to to really be filling in a lot of these gaps. Um, I also know Dan Kittredge and have done some some work in in, in talking with with Dan as well. And so um, I think that you're right. We do need to be looking at a lot more of uh, the nutritive quality, uh, nutritive value of the food that is being produced um, using these regenerative practices. It's a it's a very complex type of thing, and and I'm sure that you know that, and, and being able to get the measurements, um, so it's not really a, a part of with the funding that we have to be able to do that. But it is definitely something that we are uh, discussing with others about and trying to figure out a way how can we go about um, maybe being able to do some additional testing. Um, we are looking at possibly looking at some SAP testing, which doesn't give you all of the nutrient information um, when it comes to uh, what what would be the, the consumed food necessarily. Um, but we can get some information from there as far as how that is uh, addressing some of the, the mineral um, needs of the, the plants, the crops that are growing, and you know how that could be translated into the, the food component of that. The other thing that we're trying to you know also take a look at and get some better understanding of, um, again, this is not part of the Living Labs project, but, but hopefully as we continue to expand some of this funding is, is looking at some of the the other compounds, not just the, the mineral nutrients, but antioxidants and polyphenolics and, and um, some of these more complex biomolecules uh, that are being produced in, or not being produced in some of our food, depending on how it's being grown. So oh, man. I think there's I love, many innovations there. Yeah, and and I love that because that that is gonna affect our return on investment when we can tell um, our customers, how much healthier this food is and, and tell it with science. Yeah. I see a note over here in the chat about it, you know, everything takes, takes money, but that would be such a great investment in terms of, of, you know, if we can get, if we can get regenerative practices where they're not having to, um, be funded by government programs, um, and, and where they are truly giving us a return on the investment in a time that allows us to to take on the practice, that would be such a such a huge boon um, to what's going on. And your work is really so important to that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Linda. Uh, first statement back is uh, we're keeping Chris. You don't get her back. <laughs> we're keeping her. We, we, we like having her here. Um, the other thing that kind of popped into my head during that is that um, I have, you know, most of my career I've spent working with, you know, applied research associations and, and uh, you know, producers in, in the area. In the last five years, the number of researchers 
that I have seen out in the field, out working with us, right? Coming to tours. Uh, I, I, I'm really excited because the regenerative agriculture movement is just growing like crazy now. And uh, I, I think it's because we're, we're, we're filling that gap that I talked about earlier. Um, even the uh, RDAR, the Results Driven Agriculture Research, had a had a get together here a while back where the, a whole bunch of the researchers came in and talked about their projects and the farmers showed up, all the different different organizations and groups across Alberta. And what a networking night that was, right? I was just so amazed at how that came together. And like most of my career, I'd never met a researcher, right? <laughs> I'm an a innovator, early adopter, and I'd never met a researcher hardly before. So the last five, 10 years, man, we've made some leaps and bounds. So I'm super excited about this. Uh, we are growing and we are, you know, conferences are selling out, right? We used to, you know, be worried that we'd, you know, sell enough tickets to break even. So, um, yeah, we're, uh, we're growing fast now. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that's really key about that is hope and, and the feeling that we can do something about the climate crisis. We can do something about the aging of agriculture. We can do something about our profitability and, and just, you know, this this series that you and Amber do is really important that way, having the science behind it, the networking piece, it, it all comes together in, in um, creating a better future. Just thankful here. We might have to quote you there, Linda, for doing any promotions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Have at it. I quote you guys all over the place. <laughs> oh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, Graham, we have you up next. Chris, thank you for what you're saying. What are your challenges in making sure that the research you do stays neutral? You've got you've got agnostic uh, theories and you're you're showing the data as it is rather than getting caught in the trap of trying to color in somebody else's holes. Well, I think that there are a couple of really great things as far as the way that this uh, living lab was designed, although we, it is uh, funded by the Canadian government. Um, we, as a lead scientist, I am not associated with any um, government entity. I'm associated with a nonprofit. Um, and uh, so we do have uh, scientists from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada that are part of the project but uh, our scientific team ranges across institutions. Um, so not just at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, um, we have members of our scientific team that are at uh, Nate, Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, uh, scientists at University of Calgary and University of Alberta. And um, we have scientists in the Netherlands that we're working with. And so we're, we're trying to go across range of a lot of institutions and a lot of organizations. And that's why, you know, we're also really grateful to have the support of most of the ARAs in um, Alberta and um, being able to make sure that that's a big part of it. Um, the team that we are working with in the Netherlands uh, that is doing a lot of the mapping technology and um, the machine learning technology, uh, they are very focused on open access to information. Um, Tom Hangel uh, is leading that team and he uh, leads uh, Open Geo Hub. So he's trying to make sure that uh, a lot of the information that's being utilized 
is open source information and, and that it's also being shared openly as we do um, publications in various types of, of, of journals and um, publications online and through social media. All of that is, is going to be something where um, we're, we're trying to be as, as neutral as possible. Um, I think the other uh, beautiful thing about the Living Lab that we've put together is that we're not looking for particular producers that fall into a particular group. Um, Organic Alberta is a, a part of the, the Living Labs, um, but they aren't, they are with all of the rest of us. So we've got some organic producers, um, some uh, conventional producers, uh, regenerative producers. And so we're trying to go across the spectrum. Um, the other thing that we're doing is with the different producers that are where we're taking samples that are part of the project, um, we are asking them uh, if their neighbors would feel comfortable if we could take some soil samples on some of their neighbors' fields as well. What we have is a is a sampling design again that's sort of pre-designed by um, the machine learning technology, but we have the option of adding. A, a number of additional samples to that sampling design. So we're not completely confined within that sampling design. Um, and this first year is where we're collecting what they call training data to help to train the machine learning um, and, and train the computer to, to be able to analyze this. But we're also um, in the second year, uh, we can expand and um, make a number of different things going on with where we're going to be sampling so we can choose to go to a number of different sites on about 50% of the samples um, we can move to to different locations some of which you know the machine learning will tell us hey I'm still missing this information here and I can't quite get all of the data and some of which will be as we uh, expand our relationships with the producers that are involved in this. So I think, you know, taking a, a multi-organizational focus as well as producers that are coming from many different arenas and many different types of production are going to help us to be able to do that. And um, the way that through uh, ACA, through the Alberta Conservation Association, the way that we have um, been working with the Canadian government on setting up our uh, agreement with them on what data we will share and how much data we will share. And we're um, really making sure that the maps that we're generating um, that I showed and I'll, I'll, I'll share with Amber, um, we're, I'm gonna share the big maps because that's another thing. We don't want you to zoom in on, on being able to, you know, this is my neighbor and they did this and this is me and I'm doing this and, and everybody being able to, to really take a look at that. We, we do want to keep the information where the data and information we're, we're generating um, because we're taking uh, about, um, in, in total, we will have roughly about 1,500 samples that we're going to be taking here in the next uh nine months, I think we're gonna be finished in taking the, the first round of 1500 samples. Um, and we wanna make sure that that data as an aggregate is used to generate the maps and the aggregate information is what we're gonna be sharing with the Canadian government, but everything else gets to be retained with the producers and with the ARAs. Thank you. Thanks, Graham.
I was going to add to that, Graham, too. Uh, remember, this is the first time we've done this. This is the first year. <laughs> We're going to get better. We're going to make sure that we get things uh, a little more accurate and, and uh, we'll, we'll get these things ironed out. And, you know, by year five, we'll be experts at this, I'm sure. Well, let's respond to that because you've got two other examples, I suppose, how to do it right or do it wrong. You've got Ontario's been up running for a while and Manitoba's been up for running even longer. So you've, you know, you've got some, some examples out there to learn from you know, rather than thinking you got to start from scratch. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, we've got some examples from, as you said, Ontario and Manitoba. Um, PEI has also had a, a living lab that's been up and running for a while. Um, this is also a, a, a concept that um, is being done by the various types of countries in within the EU. And so how the information is, is shared and how um, we're designing everything, making sure that uh, it's, it's provided very openly, I think is, is the big key. And that's, again, utilizing OpenGeoHub and utilizing a lot of these uh, more open technologies to be able to share that information is gonna be, I think, really important for all of us. Cool, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I have to say I really appreciate that question because I know that that's kind of one of my things, too, is, you know, there's I mean, you and I, Chris, have had a lot of conversations about this, the importance of unbiased research. And so I, I love that you brought up that question, question, Graham. I think it was fantastic. Um, next, we have Shorty. Shorty, Hi, why don't you throw in a plug for MASH while you're there? Oh, uh, no, people can look it up on the Internet. What? And besides, <laughs> and besides, this is all about Wednesday night networking tonight. So that is networking. Knowing what's going on. That's, okay, that's so, part of networking. So uh, there's a conference coming up on March 24th. I believe it's at the Royal Airport in a hotel in Niskew. Grow is hosting, and I'm I'm very honored to be one of the speakers presenting. So. Uh, you can look it up. I think there's a, uh, a link somewhere on Grows. If not, Amber, you can put it in, in the chat and we can go from there. But uh, yeah, tonight's all about Wednesday Night Networking and Chris. <laughs> and Steve, I can't forget Steve. <laughs> so Chris, my question for you is, and Steve, what are some of the paradigms that producers are facing with this Living Labs project? Well, I'm going to go first, Steve, and, and, and then kind of let you maybe follow up on, on some of the, the paradigms that we're facing. I think, uh, and, and Shorty, I know we, we've talked a lot about this, and, and I think there's a lot of, although there's so many innovations that have been happening and, and have been happening for, for decades. Again, you know, I point to, to Gene and, and others uh, in the Dakotas and, and others in Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan who have been doing innovations for for decades. And um, I think that the biggest thing is that even among some of the innovators, sometimes I find that we're, we're still taking a very conventionally minded approach to things. And so a lot of the things that we talk about within regenerative agriculture, it's, it's more of a replacement 
I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm going to replace this with this, but you're not totally changing your complete mindset. And I know we talk a lot about that and we've talked about this for, for decades again is, you know, the, the, the biggest barrier we have to getting regenerative agriculture and getting it at scale that we were talking about with Scott is, is this thing right here, you know, getting it through penetrated through your head to do that. But you know, I think we're we're still very human in the way that we're looking at this. And so getting those paradigm shifts in, we're not going to be thinking about this in exactly the same way. And so, you know, I'm I'm very, as you know, and several of you probably know, I'm very obsessed with soil. And uh soil is 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 a big part of my life. I tell people uh all the time, you know, I, I have a wedding ring that is soil focused. I had wedding vows that were soil focused. I have, you know, sort of the organizational chart for my family that is uh, starts with soil at the top. Um, so I, I, I'm very soil centered in, in the way that I look at things. And um, I'm not trying to say that everybody needs to be as obsessed with soil as I am. But I think that one of the big things that can help us to make some of these shifts is to be thinking like a microorganism in the soil sometimes. Um, you know, we we try and think sometimes like the plants that we're growing above ground or like the animals that we're, we're raising. But, um, you know, I think of those as, as tools for what's happening below ground. Um, so I think that that's, you know, one of the, one of the things that exists out there. I think, you know, the other thing is, is, as, as Steve was talking about, people are really excited, um, but it's hard. We're still not totally translating that level of excitement um, within the consumers and being able to make a lot of these shifts when it comes to um, consumer choices and where consumers are going at a, at a large scale. People talk about it and there's a lot of excitement, but there's not quite the, the shift that I think, you know, will help to support us. And, you know, I think the, the shift to help to support us too can not just come from the consumers, but from a lot of the uh, markets and distributors and uh, food manufacturers. And so it has to happen at all scales and all levels. And for farmers and ranchers, it also has to work financially. And so, you know, I'm really excited some of the work we're doing um, with the Alberta Finance Services Corporation and um, AFSC and some of the other things that are going on there where we can start looking at uh, working with lenders and working with crop insurance and um, other things like that that could help to make that happen for farmers and ranchers and especially for young people trying to come on the land and find uh, land to be able to rent or to own. And there's so many barriers that exist there that how do you take the risk to go out of um, the paradigm that people say, well, it's always been this way and it's always worked this way. And, you know, we all know that in reality, it hasn't always been this way when it came to agriculture, but you know, and that's something we continue to to fight against. But I think that it financially is a significant barrier for uh, new operators to be able to come in when you have so many things on some level stacked against them. But I also am really excited because I think that there is a lot of excitement and opportunities. And I'm always, I always push options and opportunities. We're not going to say that this, 
defeats us. So we're going to stand up there and this is, this is not a problem. This is an option, an opportunity for me to be able to try something different. And, you know, I know that's a big part of, of your focus, Shorty, and, and I appreciate that. And a lot of people on this call as well. Paradigms. Hmm. Isn't this saying that uh, you need to hear something 21 times before you're going to believe it or see it? I think right now, regenerative agriculture movement is looking at the early majority, right? The innovators and early adopters have already kind of done this. Now the, the, the early majority is looking at this. Uh, through the CFGA program, we did the advanced grazing system, right? We, we got some funding. The government actually threw money at it to, to build this online grazing school. They're promoting cover crops. They're, you know, uh, uh, they've got funding out there for um, improved use of nitrogen. Okay, so all these things are moving forward and we're aiming at this early majority right now. So I think a lot of the producers out there have heard this. Maybe they've only heard it 15 times or 17 times, right? Um, slowly, they're going to get onto this and they're going to, well, you know, maybe maybe we'll give this a try. And, and that's the idea behind this little bit of funding that we're throwing at them is that here, have some funding and you can, you know, jump in with both feet and it doesn't, you know, you don't have as much risk at it. So um, uh, every, everybody's had paradigms over the, over the years. And what happens is we hear it one more time and one more time. And, and I think we're, we're on that turning edge where, where more of these producers are going to say, yeah, you know what, let's, let's give this a try. Uh, we're start, it's starting to make sense. Um, soil, carbon, all of these things are at the forefront right now. I mean, uh, some of us have been banging our head against the wall for 20 years talking about, you know, growing soil and building soil. Um, but now I think it's common knowledge and we've got um, consumers, we've got urban, urban people who are passionate about this, right? And that's really going to help push this movement forward as soon as they get behind it too. Um, yeah, we're going to have some changes or, I mean, if they don't want to change, right? There's some out there that late majority or the laggards, they don't want to change. Um, I mean, I've heard this before too. It's not a very good, a, a good saying, but right, we're going to change one funeral at a time right? As one generation moves on and a new generation comes in, I think that new generation is definitely going to be taking up some of these regenerative practices. So, Great comment, Steve. Thank you. Next up, we have Bray all the way from Australia. Are you ready to go there, Bray? I am. G'day, everyone. Um, I have a question for Dr. Chris. Um, I'm not sure whether phosphorus deficiencies are something which is, um, you know, an issue in North America, but it is in Australia massively, as I'm sure you'd know. And I'm curious as to whether there's any way to address that biologically, because from what I've seen in Australia in washed out um, areas, high rainfall areas, is it's always treated with superphosphate as a direct um, input to the soil and through like phosphorus licks. Um, and, and if it's an organic situation through, through um, high phosphorus content soft rock, so I'm curious to whether you have any thoughts about that. And just, yeah, I haven't heard anything so far over this side of the pond. Well, thank you, Bray. And, you know, uh, I appreciate you you being with us. I, I'm not quite sure what time you're in. I think early morning, maybe? Very early morning? No, it's about 11. About 11, okay. Uh, but anyway, um, so I, I appreciate you being with us. And I think that... Phosphorus is something we do talk about universally as, as an issue, uh, wherever you are, farmers and ranchers will always talk about phosphorus as being an issue, but in Australia, it really is an issue. Um, 
the the soils that you have and how your soils were were created uh, to begin with, um, there is a phosphorus issue. You do live on a, a continent that has that as an issue far more than we do here in North America and um, on most of the other continents on, on Earth, to be honest. Um, Australia, it's a very major issue. So, you know, recognizing that because Oftentimes, you know, my my first comment back when people talk about phosphorus as an issue, I'm always like, well, it's it's not that you don't have phosphorus, it's that you don't have a lot of available phosphorus. And so working with the different organisms in the soil, working with the mycorrhizal fungi and uh, the phosphate solubilizing bacteria that will colonize the fungal hyphae, um, you know, working with some plants uh, like uh, buckwheat that will help to bring some phosphorus up and make some more phosphorus available. All of those things I'm sure you've probably heard about, um, but it, and, and they are, I think, part of the solution, especially uh, in uh, other continents than Australia. It is a part of the solution in Australia, but, um, you know, we're also going to have to be looking, I think, in uh, Australia as to what are some of the innovations that we can make to help to provide more available phosphorus. And so, you know, looking at some things, utilizing um, some compost, especially composted manure. Um, and so looking more at uh, animal waste because there is phosphorus that's there and that's uh, helping to bring some phosphorus back to the or onto the continent of Australia because that is that is an ongoing challenge that you're going to continue to have. But that being said, not just bringing it in, but making sure that again, you're working with the biology to be able to try and make sure that that phosphorus, uh, maintains its availability. And as uh, Steve was talking to in how we're seeing different things happening with the way that we're changing the pHs of our soils with some of the management that we're doing um, that can have an effect on phosphorus availability. And so, you know, wanting to get uh, ways in which we can buffer that. And really as we're growing carbon, and adding that organic matter to the soils. Organic matter is the ultimate buffer for everything. Um, it helps to buffer pH, it helps to buffer phosphorus availability. It makes um, even some phosphorus that would become unavailable that isn't being made available by the biological community. If it gets bound to organic matter, it's going to be able to be there in a more exchangeable form. So a lot of times we talk about the cation exchange capacity of organic matter or cation exchange capacity for um, clay minerals. But organic matter has both cation and anion exchange capacity, and that's going to help to release that phosphate, make that phosphate more available. So as we're building up that organic matter, that is going to be, you know, a big key to being able to make sure that the phosphorus is going to be maintained and in an available form or at least at a, a form that can be made available fairly easily by the microbial community or by the plants. Um, again, I don't have a good solution for you, Bray, because you you live in a tough place. Um, I've yeah. been to Australia a few times that it's a, it's, a, it's a tough place to try and, and, and farm and ranch on, but um, you know, we, we've, we've all got to do it and, and looking for these different solutions and different ways in which we can manage it, I think are, are going to be a big part of what we're doing moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. Yes. My comments on that would be that we, you know, it's our job as producers to grow soil, right? We use the plants to grow the soil. 
I've said it for years now, now every piece of land is different and some, you know, it took, if it took a hundred years to destroy a piece of land, it's going to take more than, you know, two or three to fix the land. But I, I strongly believe that we don't really have a fertility issue in agriculture. We have a biological issue, right? We're lacking biology. There's a lot of available, you know, unavailable nutrients that if we get the, you know, the, the fungus and the bacteria in there working the way, you know, they're supposed to, then a whole bunch of that of unavailable nutrients becomes available, right? Um, a muscular mycorrhizae fungi, right? The, it, it secretes a bit of an acid out of the tip that can actually decompose and it, it's really good at finding phosphorus. So if we can build up our soils and get that, you know, that uh, biological activity throughout our, our, our network of soil, um, then we start getting those nutrients and we don't have to be adding all the time to it, right? I haven't used fertility in 25 years. Right. And then we've got some pretty, pretty nice looking pastures out there. So um, it's just a matter of, of getting nature, you know, working back the way it was supposed to do. So, and yeah, I don't know anything about Australian soils. I'm, I'm sure you got some, some pretty rugged land down there, but um, I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? It takes time yeah. to fix it. It's not going to happen overnight. And if you can, you know, add something that doesn't hurt your biological com community to speed that up. Great. Right, yeah. bring in carbon, add something somehow. Wood chips, bale grazing, you know, old straw bales. They, you know, get it started, get it healing, and then let the biology do its work. Um, how was talked about before about how like scale really changed the discussion. Like, I think in Australia more so than a lot of other places. Like where I'm going to be working next is going to be up north Queensland, and it's going to be a million acre station. Like it's company owned one, but like in those places, the idea of composting you know, and, and, and getting more animal manure out there isn't, isn't feasible solution. So it's always like, you know, it's, it's all useful in some degree, but yeah, some things just don't transfer across to that scale. Definitely. Well, and, and I, you know, I think that there's, there's a part of that. I'm going to say yes and no to that. I say yes and no to a lot of things um, because I think there's a part of that, that, that you're right. It's, it's a challenge. Um, and, you know, part of the challenge too, I think, is that we need to, we need to quit focusing on all of the acres that we're looking at and tar start targeting some places that um, you can start to, to look at regenerating and building up organic better and how it is that you can do that. And yeah, you're not going to probably feasibly be able to, to compost and, and add manure um, to that much acreage, but is there a part of that that can do that? Because the other thing that happens as you get the soil more biologically active is, you know, you can get um, the mycorrhizal fungal hyphae moving uh, many, many, many miles across uh, the field. Um, you can, you know, be able to get some of these things. And again, they have the, in addition to some of the acids they produce, they have these phosphorus solubilizing bacteria that said it kind of hitched a ride on their hyphae and go with them um, to be able to do that. But I think the other thing is that that we need to be thinking about when we're, you know, we're talking about kind of targeting some of these areas, um, people will oftentimes talk to me and say, well, you know, if you're doing like what Steve's doing and, and not adding nutrients or, you know, you, you cut back so severely, aren't you just mining this all out of the soil? And one of the things that we forget about a lot and, um, you know, I wish again, infinite number of dollars to do research would be nice because I'd love to test a lot of these different types of things. But uh, one of the things that I think that we we do need to start testing and thinking about is 
um, atmospheric deposition of various types of nutrients that are coming in. And there's a lot to be said for that. And that's where I'm saying, you know, even if you just target some areas in your, in your fields, you can potentially get some of those nutrients to move to some of the other areas, not just below ground, but also above ground. Um, you know, no matter what we do with reducing soil disturbance, we're always going to have some dust that's going to be coming off of our fields. And so how is it that we're, we're managing to make sure that where that dust lands, it's going to be able to continue to provide value? Um, you know, from various types of, and this was a, a big thing uh, in the Canadian prairies, um, because in the, the coal fire plants that were uh, in the Dakotas and in the Canadian prairies, um, there used to not be what they referred to as a, you know, there was an abundance amount of sulfur in your soils. And now farmers and ranchers are saying, well, we're having a sulfur problem in the, in the prairies. And because they put uh, scrubbers on um, the coal plants and took out the, the NOx and SOx uh, that reduced the amount of sulfur that you were getting atmospherically onto your fields. That doesn't mean that you don't have sulfur in your fields. It just means that how you got it atmospherically isn't happening. And so again, I think there's a lot of ways in which when, when it works for us to talk about the fact that we we get these nutrients atmospherically, we're like all in. And then, you know, when we're not having to think about that, we don't, we don't think about the fact that we're getting that. So I've, I've really been able to see some changes that you can make in some small areas that actually spread to larger areas. So that's why I'm going to encourage you to, to sort of push back a little bit and say, yeah, you know, yes and no. I understand it's a challenge, but let's do this here and, and see what it is that we can do to, to maximize efficiency and intensify some of these areas on our landscape to be able to help to remediate some of the other areas on our landscape. That's a very good point. Thank you very much. Yeah. I was actually just forwarded a, an article. I didn't actually get to read it, but the, the title of it was, uh, I think it was Phosphorus Ageddon, because there's such a shortage of phosphorus in Canada this year that everybody's panicking that they're not going to be able to get phosphorus. So um, technically it's happening here too. We're, we're short of, of all sorts of stuff, but uh, yeah, there's lots in the ground. We just need the biology. Thanks guys. Um, Chris, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. So two things. First off, can you please talk a little, little bit about mycorrhizal fungi, do a very basics for people who might have not have heard of these fantastic fungus before? And can you do the thing? <laughs> for those of you on the podcast, well, she's feeling herself laughing here right now. <laughs> of course, of course, you want me to do the thing when we're talking about phosphorus. Of course. Yes. So but first explain um, what mycorrhizal yes. fungi is. Mycorrhizal fungi. So uh, mycorrhizal fungi are um, some of the oldest microorganisms on the planet. Uh, they were organisms that helped plants to actually first colonize land. And so they are associated with almost all of all of crop plants. Um, they're not associated with a lot of brassica plants. Most of the brassica plants aren't associated with mycorrhizal fungi and some of the later evolving crop plants aren't associated with mycorrhizal fungi or as strongly associated with mycorrhizal fungi. But what these organisms do is their fungal hyphae, the fine threads that grow out into the soil, um, they will work with 
um, other organisms, other fungi and bacteria that are either colonizing. And when I say colonizing, they're basically attached to the fungal hyphae wall. And so as the hyphae moves, the bacteria that are much smaller than the fungal hyphae will actually move with them to these areas. And what they do is they are primarily involved in uh, making sure that they can get a high concentration of various types of nutrients. And usually the way this happens is you'll get a, a signal um, from the plant that in the form of a carbon exudate or carbon going to the mycorrhizal fungi. So the mycorrhizal fungi that we're primarily talking about are what are called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi or endomycorrhizal fungi. And they will actually grow into the fungal hyphae itself or into the roots themselves and grow up to, they penetrate the root cell walls and grow up to the root cell membrane. And then they form these highly branched structures called arbuscules. And what that does is that allows them to maximize the surface area exposed to the cell membrane so that they can provide very efficiently the maximum amount of nutrients that they collected out in the soil. And out in the soil, they will mimic those arbuscules where they will have a lot of fine hyphae that branch out into various pockets in the soil where there are nutrients. And then, as I said, they can pr produce some of their own uh, enzymes and acids, but they will also work with other fungi and bacteria to produce enzymes and acids and release some of those nutrients that are bound up in the soil or bound up with the minerals or bound up in organic matter and free up those nutrients. And then it's, it's like a pipeline that is directly connected from the soil back to the roots and they will drop off those nutrients. And they do that in exchange for carbon from the plant. And so um, one of the, the things and the thing that everybody's talking about, the thing, <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that they do that is, is really interesting again is how they can help to not just connect the plants to the soil, but connect plants to other plants. And so one of the things that you will see that will happen is that you can have two plants growing side by side. You'll have a um, legume plant and a non-legume plant, and you will have the mycorrhizal fungi that will connect the roots between those two plants. So even if they're growing really closely together, the roots can't anneal, they can't connect to each other, but they can be connected by the, the mycorrhizal fungal hyphae. And so we're gonna talk about basically five different organisms. So we've got two plants, we've got a legume plant and a non-legume plant, and then we've got the mycorrhizal fungi, and then you have the um, phosphorus solubilizing bacteria that I talked about that live on the, the hyphae of the mycorrhizal fungi, and you have nitrogen fixing bacteria, the rhizobium bacteria that live in the, the roots of the legume. And so what happens is you'll have the non-legume plant talk to the mycorrhizal fungus via carbon exudates that are going into the roots and into the mycorrhizal fungus. And it will basically tell the mycorrhizal fungus what it needs. And in this case, it says, I need nitrogen and phosphorus. And the mycorrhizal fungus, because it's connected to the legume plant, the mycorrhizal fungus says, okay, you know, I can handle that because I've got a lot of nitrogen that is in that legume plant, and I can give you some of that nitrogen. And it just so happens I also have the phosphate solubilizing bacteria that live on my hyphae, and I can have them release more phosphate, and then I can get that phosphate, and I can give that to you as long as you give me carbon. And so the 
non-legging plant says, okay, you know, I'll give you carbon and you go out and do that. So the mycorrhizal fungus then goes over to the legging plant and it says to the legging plant, well, I need you to give me some nitrogen so that I can give some of that nitrogen to the non-legging plant. And I will in exchange give you some more phosphorus because um, I have the phosphorus solubilizing bacteria that live on my hyphae. Legging plant says, okay, that's a fine deal. I will give you some nitrogen and I will give you some carbon for that. And so the legging plant then goes and it talks to the rhizobium bacteria and it says to the rhizobium bacteria, you need to kick up more nitrogen fixation because I need to give nitrogen to the mycorrhizal fungus and the mycorrhizal fungus give some of that nitrogen to the non-legging plant. And then the rhizobium bacteria says to the legging plant, well, I could do that. However, I need more phosphorus in order to be able to do that because it takes a lot of energy to fix nitrogen. You take the uh, nitrogen gas, it's a triple bond between those two nitrogen atoms, and it takes a lot of energy to break that. And in a cell, on a cellular level, the way that energy is generated is that you have a, a molecule called ATP. And as ATP um, gets goes through a cycle in which ATP is broken down and some of the, one of the phosphate groups is ripped off and it becomes ADP, adenosine, adenosine diphosphate. So you had adenosine triphosphate. It had three phosphate groups on it. One of the phosphate groups gets ripped off. And as that happens, electrons are released. And when those electrons pass through a membrane, they fire the cell. They provide energy to do this. And it takes roughly 32 of these cycles in order to be able to fix one, to break the bonds and to fix one molecule of nitrogen. And so the rhizomium says, well, I can't take the phosphate that got ripped off and put it back on because it lost the electrons. So you need to have more phosphate coming into me. And so the legume plant then goes back to the mycorrhizal fungus and it says, well, I need to get more phosphate. Can you help me out with that? The mycorrhizal fungus says, well, I could do that, but I need to get more carbon to feed the rhizobium bacteria or the phosphate solubilizing bacteria so that we get more phosphate that gets released so that phosphate can then go into the mycorrhizal hyphae and mycorrhizal hyphae can take some of that phosphate to the legume plant and the legume plant can give some of that phosphate to the rhizobium bacteria. So the rhizobium bacteria can then fix more nitrogen and that nitrogen can go into the legume and some of that nitrogen can go into the mycorrhizal fungus. And the mycorrhizal fungus can take some of that nitrogen as well as some of the phosphate and give that to the non-legume plant. And so you have nitrogen and phosphate that are flowing through the system and carbon is flowing to the mycorrhizal fungi and to the rhizobium bacteria. And all of a sudden there's this traffic jam. And so the mycorrhizal fungus goes back to the non-legging plant and it says, you know what? I can only do as much as I can do. I've got to get phosphate to the rhizomium bacteria that are inside the legume in order for me to get nitrogen. And I have to get phosphate to you and I've got too much phosphate flowing through my hyphae. Can you help me out here? And because they've been working together for hundreds of millions of years, the non-legging plant says, all right, you know what? I have the secret code to phosphate solubilization and I'll help you absorb phosphate against a gradient so that you can get enough phosphate from the phosphate solubilizing bacteria that you give carbon to that I had. I'll give you that carbon. You can give some of that carbon to the phosphate solubilizing bacteria and some of that phosphate, some of that carbon you can use to continue to grow and go to the legging plant and get some of the nitrogen from that legging plant that the nitrogen gets from the rhizomium bacteria that got phosphate from you in order to be able to fix more nitrogen. And we're gonna have all of this happening between these plants and it happens instantaneously in this cycle. And so when we're looking at being able to manage some of our nutrients and we know, we've known about this relationship between nitrogen and phosphorus and rhizobium bacteria and um, the phosphate solubilizing bacteria since the 1980s. And we're learning more and more all the time about different types of micronutrients, not just nitrogen and phosphorus that are moving between the plants. So the more that we can have some of these different plants growing at the same time, 
the more we can work with the efficiencies of this system and really be able to exploit what's happening and, and grow the system to be more functional and more efficient. Thank you, Chris. Man, you know, every time I hear that, I, I start off and I'm like, okay, I'm really going to pay attention and I'm going to get it. I'm going to get like every piece <laughs> of that. And then, and then it, somewhere along the way, I think maybe I get a little bit further each time. I've heard that quite a few times now, but I think I get a little bit further, but then I'm just like, no, I'm just going to enjoy this now. <laughs> I'm going to stop thinking. <laughs> Chris, I'd like to add two things. Yes. Um, uh, our buscular mycorrhizae fungi, a couple of the things that I uh, really like about what it can do. Uh, one is in a drought situation, it can actually haul water to our plants, mm -hmm. right? And, and in addition to being this, this big network that's reaching out, they're bringing nutrients to the plant. It also can haul water when it needs it, right? That plant's getting desperate and, and it, the mycorrhizae fungi need sugar. So it goes, gets, find some water for them. And then there's the other thing about this whole big issue about carbon sequestration, right? Um, mycorrhizae fungi can actually take the sugar from the plant and convert it into a product called glomalin. I believe that's how you say it, which is a long-term stable form of carbon that stays in the soil, very hard to, to break down. So um, if we're talking about building soil, man, that mycorrhizae fungi is really important in, in uh, converting that carbon into, into a stable form in the, in the soil. So, and I've got a bit of a story about 20 years ago now, I had a bus tour come out to our farm and it was a brand new piece of land I just put up the fencing the, the, I think it was the gateway research organization the one to come out and look at our fencing and I remember I got out there and I was all excited I was really new at this like it's like my, my first bus tour that ever came out and I was talking about the fencing and the plants and and I I made a comment about well I need this legume it was an alfalfa plant I need this legume to fertilize my grass right that's what's gonna I, I want to make sure I got legumes out here and I didn't realize it at the time, but there was a grazing expert on the bus. It was like a government researcher expert. I don't know. I don't even remember who he was, but I remember he said, he, he stopped me bluntly. And he said, Steve, you know what? I'm going to stop you right there. I do not want you to be misinforming these producers. I'm like, what did I say? And I remember he said, uh, it has been proven over and over in a lab that that alfalfa plant will not give nitrogen to the grasses right it won't it'll only produce enough for itself and i'm like uh okay let's say i believe you which i don't because i've seen green grass you know next to a legume that's greener than the stuff beside right i was really new at this but i didn't believe that at all and uh but then i went into about how about nutrient recycling right when when that plant grows up it brings in it's got nitrogen it makes its own nitrogen then the cow eats it and then spreads that manure and urine around, which fertilizes the grass, right? So that was my argument at the time, but I still believed strongly back then that there was some way that they shared, um, but that's way back then, nobody talked about our muscular mycorrhizae fungi and, and how they can connect plants together to actually share nutrients. So again, it's about biology. We need the biology out there. It's not a fertility issue. Yeah, that's so right. And if I can just just add a, a couple of things too to really the way that, in addition to what I was just talking about, the the mycorrhizal fungi and and the glomalin or glomalin, whatever you however you want to call it, um, it basically is is a, a a biomolecule that is part of that stabilized carbon that's produced by the mycorrhizal fungi, but it also can help to form and stabilize soil aggregates. 
So the mycorrhizal fungi, the aggregates are formed on the fungal hyphae. They act as kind of a, a framework or a net to start to collect soil particles and organic matter and um, clay minerals and sand and silt. And then the um, glomalin can actually uh, help to stick that together but it also can help on the surface to stabilize the soil aggregates. And the beauty of creating an aggregate is that is sort of almost like a little microbial town for the fungi, for the mycorrhizal fungi that are growing through that, and for the bacteria that are inside that aggregate, that little tiny ball in the soil. It makes your soil look a little bit like cottage cheese structure to it. And so what you have is inside those aggregates, like a little microbial town, you have the organic matter and you have um, silt and clay minerals and sand particles and uh, other debris that's inside there. And so it's it's like, you know, a sand particle is the town grocery store and a clay mineral is another grocery store. And you've got, you know, the, the butcher shop that's on the silt particle. And you've got all of these things that are providing for the nutrients that get broken down slowly by the mycorrhizal fungi and by the bacteria that are in there to release those nutrients inside those aggregates. And then they can be funneled directly back to the plant. So it helps to improve the efficiency instead of the fungi having to grow further out into the soil, they actually create a, a store or a town right next to the plant roots that allows them to really efficiently be able to obtain those nutrients and bring those back to the plant. And again, as Steve sort of mentioned, when we're talking about building up organic matter and Bray, you know, in, in your soils, building up organic matter is really critical. Putting organic matter in these aggregates and utilizing the glomalin or glomalin to be able to do that is going to both the molecule itself is relatively stable, but the organic matter inside those aggregates is now more stable as well. And so it's really gonna to help to build up that organic matter in the soil. And when you have those soil aggregates, it isn't just what's happening in the aggregates, but it's also what's happening between the aggregates. Between the aggregates now, you have more pore space between those aggregates because those balls don't fit tightly up to each other. There's actually space that's around them and that allows for better air movement, better gas movement, oxygen getting into the soil and CO2 coming off of the soil and being able to escape. It also allows for more rapid infiltration rates. Um, they you know, have done studies where you, know, you, you increase the amount of, of porosity that you have in your soil and um, you can increase, so you increase the amount of porosity that you have in your soil by about 50%. You can increase your infiltration rate of the first inch um, by about 150% and, and of the second inch by over 600%. So you have these ways in which by that aggregation, you're able to get faster water infiltration but it isn't just getting the faster water infiltration, which is important to us all as we've seen these periods of drought and then periods of heavy rainfall. We also want to make sure with these periods of drought that we can hold on to the water. And the beauty of the aggregates is that the water moves around the aggregates and it's not a straight path. It has to bend and curve and move around the aggregates. And it's kind of like I equate this to if you have a straw and you put a whole bunch of bends in the straw, and then you try and drink 
out of it and you can't you can't really pull any fluid through that straw because of all of the bends and kinks that are there and so when you have those bends and curves around the aggregates you can retain more water there because gravity is constantly pulling water out of the soil profile and evaporation sunlight is constantly pulling water up off of the top and so you can lose water between rainfalls not just what the plant is using but to these processes of gravity pull and um, absorption off of the surface and so you want to be able to maintain that water by putting that water in those bends and kinks that you have around those soil aggregates so it really is where you know, we refer to it as kind of microbial engineering that the mycorrhizal fungi have done. They have engineered an environment that is ideal for the plants to grow because they, they need to have the plants growing to get that carbon, the food from the plants. And so they're constantly trying to improve that efficiency in how you're getting nutrients, how you're getting water and how you're maintaining water. And the other thing that I wanted to point out too is because you have the, the nutrients flowing through the mycorrhizal fungal hyphae, and that's connected right inside the root cells, instead of having to have mass flow of water around the rhizosphere of the roots to try and get nutrients to flow towards the roots, you actually have a pipeline that's bringing it and that pipeline gets to be protected. Part of the glomalin will be on some of that hyphae protecting that pipeline so that water and nutrients don't escape. And so it's a much more efficient process of making sure that you can get nutrients to the roots and inside the roots without having to have a lot of water in the rhizosphere to get mass flow to the nutrients towards the roots. And you're not gonna lose those nutrients as they're moving from further out into the soil into the roots because they're moving through a pipeline that is coated with the glomalin and you're not losing those nutrients as they're moving through the soil environment. So it's it really is, again, you know, biology is, is sort of the solution to a lot, to, to all of the issues that we have. And, you know, I talk about carbon being our limiting nutrient because carbon limits the activity of, of the biological organisms and the biology is constantly trying to find ways to do things much more efficiently than we could ever design. You know, when we're talking about fertilizer placement, that's what I was talking about. But again, the biology has made fertilizer placement technology on steroids because it's not just placing the fertilizer near where the seeds are, it's placing the fertilizer inside the root cell walls. And that's what it is that we're, we're trying to do to maximize that efficiency. And, you know, we can't, we can't mimic the technology that biology has. Oh, I like that. That's a good quote right there, Chris. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, we do have, I, we're getting, we're almost that time, but I'm wondering if we could kind of go quickly through, there's two questions here that I think will be really good if you have time for it, Chris. Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, so the first one, he wants me to read it out. And the question is, does the living lab soil testing project do a total inventory of nutrients or only available nutrients? That's a very good question. Um, we are doing a total nutrient digestion on all of our samples that we're taking. And from our samples, we collect them down to a meter and we divide that into four different 
depth increments. And so we do total nutrient analysis on all four of those depths. Um, we are also looking um, on some of the select samples. Um, we are looking at doing some available nutrient analysis as well as uh, some weak acid nutrient analysis that's similar to the uh, Haney test. So utilizing some weak organic acids. We won't be doing that on all of the samples. Um, again, finances are a big part of that, but we are going to be doing that on um, select samples so that we can get a better understanding of what's happening and how, how total nutrient concentration compares to standard available nutrient testing and to um, the organic acid or Haney test. For those of you who've heard of the Haney test, if you haven't, um, I'd be happy to, to share information and I'm sure Amber's got some information as well on, on the Haney test um, to do that. Awesome. And then the next one that we have up, oh, there's, there's so many comments. This has been pretty active today. Um, Patty, are you ready to go or do you want me to read it? You're ready to go. I see you there. Okay. Maybe not. I will read it out. Um, Patty was hoping that Chris could talk a little more about the health of the plant soil, plant or soil and the immune system to not have insect pests. Ah, yes. And I, I saw a, a little bit of discussion on that. Um, one of the things that we find, again, as we're improving the health of our soil, is that it allows the plants to be able to um, form some of the, the biomolecules that are important to the plant health, including the antioxidants. And the antioxidants are stress biomolecules that are in plant cell walls to protect from solar radiation, as well as protect from insect pests and diseases. And so what we, what we see with this is as we get healthier soils, to make those antioxidants, you need not just uh, carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen, but you also need some of the micronutrients that are found in the soil. Um, in addition, some antioxidants uh, are formed um, almost uh, entirely or partially by microbial community. One of the antioxidants um, of interest of late is an antioxidant called ergothionine that are formed by mushroom producing fungi. And they will form this ergothionine and uh, that will then get into the plants themselves um, through absorption uh, in the roots. And so being able to have a greater amount of antioxidants are gonna help the plants to withstand, the plant cell wall to have the rigidity to withstand um, pest and disease pressure. In addition, as we improve the health of the soil and the formation of antioxidants, polyphenolics, and all of these other elements inside the cytosol, inside the liquid, inside plant cells, we're going to be able to also help to resist plant and or pest and disease issues because what happens is plants have a rigid cell wall, sort of a, a rectangle that's, that's formed, that's a rigid cell wall and the antioxidants reinforce that rigid cell wall but then inside they have a cell membrane and that cell membrane can shrink or expand depending on the diffusion of fluid water into that cytosol, into that cell membrane. And when you have a higher concentration of biomolecules, the antioxidants, polyphenolics, um, nutrients, other biomolecules inside that cell itself, the um, water, liquid will flow into there 
and the cell membrane will expand and fill the cell wall. And when that happens in healthy plants, there is osmotic pressure that cell membrane is exerting pressure on the cell wall. And so when an insect will try and stick its proboscis through the cell wall and into the cell membrane and penetrate into the cell, you've got that pressure just pushing it out. Or if it tries to bite, you still have that same level of pressure pushing that out. And so it makes it much more difficult for the insects to be able to penetrate through into the cell membrane and penetrate through deeper into um, the, not just the epidermal cells, but deeper into uh, the cell, the, the plant itself and getting closer to the, the xylem and phloem and having that negative effect on the plant. So we've got these mechanisms that the plant has, again, worked with the soil biology to design to actually help to resist some of those pest and disease pressures. That kind of answer, I hope, some of that. That's perfect. And we are over time, guys. So we're going to call it for this part of the session after networking. Networking is, is going to start right away here. Chris, you're welcome to stay. Don't feel like you're required to stay by any means. I know you've been incredibly busy for the last little bit, so don't, don't feel like you have to stay. Um, but before we do, we normally get both you and Steve or our guest and Steve to go over any closing remarks. Um, I'd love to have it focused on living lab in your direction, just because that's kind of what the whole topic was on tonight and an encouragement for producers. So we'll let you go first, Chris, and then we'll end with Steve. Yeah, um, I want to really thank you for the opportunity to talk about this and the fabulous questions that we've had. Um, I'm really excited as a, as a research scientist. Um, I, I get excited about uh, the the things that are going on with the living labs, because I really love the, the innovations that are happening and being able to see that those innovations and talk with producers about those various innovations and then get data to show what's really happening with those innovations as we see that buildup of soil um, and, and sort of recarbonizing and, and regenerating our soil environment. So I really wanna encourage um, the producers that are supporting the, the living labs and um, we're really going to try and work to, to share this information as uh, Linda was was asking so that we can get a, a larger mass of this information and data out there to a larger sector of um, the agricultural population globally and you know maybe potentially get information to, to Bray and, and allow that to be shared in Australia as well. So um, you know I think that that's the biggest thing is being able to get information out there um, and data and as I said uh, early on data out is only quality data if you have good data in and um, the way that we've designed the, the sampling scheme and everything I'm really excited about as a, as a scientist, because I think we've got that designed very well from a data in standpoint, but we really do need the support and encouragement of uh, the producers that are involved in the project because um, it only comes with getting the good data. And so, you know, I'm excited that Steve talked about finding all of uh, the grazing information that he's had. Um, and being able to put that in and share that and uh, other soil data that you might have can be a really big part of this project. And again, it's a 
it's a producer driven project. So in the end, it's only as good as the producers that are driving it. And um, so I really want to thank uh, their support and support of um, all of the, the ARAs and other organizations that are really helping to move this forward. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I'm super excited about this as well. Um, I mean, most of my information, uh, you know, has been observational over the years, right? I mean, we can do economic, you know, animal days per acre and yield calculations. But, um, you know, a couple of years ago, the U of A came out and did some studies kind of the first time on our land. And we had some like pretty unbelievable results. I didn't think that they were going to be that good either. Uh, so I'm really excited to get some more of these results, some more actual quantified data by, a, you know, research scientists that that can be, you know, hopefully down the road peer reviewed and be, you know, uh, successful in the in the industry. So, um, yeah, getting some of this um, observational information out in in uh, real scientific form is going to be a, a real breakthrough, I think, in this uh, the living lab thing. So, excellent, awesome. Thanks to the Gateway Research Organization for uh, uh, allowing us to to be a part of this for so long. I mean, this is the almost the end of the third season. So I'm uh, pretty excited that we've been doing this this long. So take her away, Amber. Great. Thank you, guys. And yes, we have one more session. It is in two weeks from now. So Wednesday, the let me just pull up a calendar here. Wednesday, the 29th will be our last session for this season. Um, so don't forget to show up because it's going to be a really good time. And Chris, thank you so much for tonight. I, you know, as, as you well know, I enjoy every time we get to hang out. Um, we get in some crazy conversations, which are fantastic and um, I hope to see you guys all soon and if you are in the area please check out our event on Friday we're gonna have a barbecue it's gonna be just a really great hangout time check out mash because that's gonna be a fantastic time as well and keep an eye on our social media because there will be a lot going on with gateway research organization thanks everybody